there's two important things to being resilient. And one is maintaining open space. So that's part sure. of the reason why I'm a little bit more inclusive in what constitutes a smaller and medium-sized farm, because numbers of farms are important in terms of keeping open space open. But the other thing is the knowledge. Once knowledge is lost because people are leaving farming, that's it. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. What is food resilience and, and how can we be more food wise? And while we're at it, we may also learn how to raise sheep and make cheese and, and lots of other things and write books. I'm really happy to have a person that can handle questions like that with me today. And Gigi Berardi is a professor at Huxley College in Bellingham, and she specializes in food resilience. And Gigi, uh, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Well, I wish I was up there, though, too. Uh, describe <laughs> for everybody where you are. You actually, do I have this right? You take a boat to work sometimes to so your office? or is I do. And in fact, I'm taking a ferry tonight. And then taking it back. And so um, this is an interesting day for me. It's a beautiful uh, fall day. And I also study biodynamics and anthroposophy. Uh -huh. And uh, so August 1st, but this is also true for farmer almanac, almanac yeah, yeah. lore everywhere. August 1st is, of course, the first day of fall. And it really does feel like that. Um, so uh, in September, and it is the last day for me to milk my sheep. So I've had about six or seven meetings today. And um, related to school and uh, school starting and um, because I'm teaching business and sustainability as well as a kind of history and philosophy of science class for the graduate students. So it's not always agriculture, yeah. um, but then I need to milk the sheep and that will be the last time uh, this season and then they'll be dried off. And yeah, tonight I'm taking a ferry and uh, uh, to Bellingham. And uh, right now I'm on Shaw Island and Shaw is one of four islands in the San Juan, San Juan Archipelago that's serviced by the Washington State Ferry System. It's the smallest island. How long does it take to take the ferry over? Well, the ferry is only 40 minutes or 50 minutes, but um, our Washington State Fairies are in crisis, which is a whole other discussion. And uh, it's not uncommon these past few weeks for fairies to be canceled. So it can take a long time if you're waiting for the next ferry. <laughs> but the ride itself is not very long. Oh, I, I would I love ferry rides. I might not like it if I had to commute that way all the time, but or oftentimes, but but I've I just think of the special places like Hong Kong where you could take the Star Ferry through the Hong Kong Harbor and and uh, some others that I've been to and up over around Vancouver too and out in the ferries and and so it's a it's kind of a romantic perspective. It's kind of something you go live on an island. You live on an island. You raise sheep. You you uh, you go to the mainland. You're at a college. 
you're living the good life, it seems to me. <laughs> I think so. I'm also making cheese. I and know. so I just I just made my last uh, two hard cheeses for the season. One is a Gouda and the other is a Jack cheese that I brined in whiskey. And um, and then the very last cheese I'll make is a softer cheese, a feta, and I'll make that um, I'll make that tomorrow. So I teach the art and science of cheese making with an ecotoxicologist friend. She does the chemistry, and I do the practical part of it. So we've actually been able to make it an academic practice: the well, sheep it, rearing and the and the cheese making. You're doing the hands-on part. I mean, you actually start with mm -hmm. milking. Uh, and I'm, yes, and I actually, this is truly artisan cheese or farmstead cheese in the sense that the milk comes from here. I hand milk the sheep. Yeah. You need to name that cheese, like, uh, so that something like Parmigiano, where it was illegal for everybody else in the world to be able to call it, because you're, you know, I don't even think you're allowed to call something Parmesan or Parmigiano anyway, because they're, it's like champagne or something. Uh, well, this is an important piece, you know, to the whole farm resilience in terms of a business and economic perspective. And I teach eco-gastronomy courses, gastronomy courses in uh, Switzerland and Italy. And these ones in Italy are connected with the slow food movement. So I don't know if you're familiar with Carlo sure. Petrini, who started the slow food movement, the journalist, but we we partnered with him directly one to one when I first started this about 10 years ago. And there we started to learn a lot more about um, about um, about basically labeling mm -hmm. and uh, establishing for slow food. It's stages and uh, and and. Um, and and presidi they're called but anyway it's it has to do with the whole production process where it happens how it happens who's happening to it but it's not just slow food all of europe the european union and even individual countries have started to um, put together you know criteria for protected designation of origin it's called at least in italy the the english of that and um and it's important you're paying to support uh, a process. But I have to say, there's kind of a dark side to it, too. So this is what's interesting, because when you actually are able to study this in place, you hear all the stories. So, for example, what we hear is there's a, um, uh, there's a particular cheese in Puglia, which, um, which uh, slow food started to protect but by protecting it they started to require that the cheese be aged more right. because thinking that people wanted an aged cheese but this is a fresh cheese it's not served like that usually and they kind of changed the profile the taste profile of what the cheese traditionally was now i'm sure slow food had other reasons for doing this but but it still it has become a different cheese and uh, than what people are used to. And also it's become priced out of the market for, for locals. But one of the things we're doing when we're in Italy is studying sensory food science and looking at sensory profiles and what it is that constitutes a good food, an authentic food, and what I that profile it. is like. Well, you know, I just talked to a chef who just went over and 
and was getting the whole tour in Parma and seeing all the cheeses that were made, the, the Parmigiano Reggiano. And I, I decided, gee, I'd like to get one of those wheels, you know, the big wheels of Parmigiano. And if you go on Amazon, you can order one for $5,000. Wow. So it's several hundred pounds, I think. They're really huge. And you can ship them from Italy. And so I'm putting that off. It's not it's not one of my priorities any longer. But I but it just reminded me of what you said. I mean, there is a value to being authentic and having having a story. And that it doesn't surprise me now to hear that you're connected with uh, slow food. Yeah. Slow food, I believe, is going to come here to where I live in Sacramento, California. And I think they're going to have like their major North America meeting here next year. Yeah, uh, that's if, really if we're actually meeting again. It's really exciting. One of the people I work with is Mother Noella Marcellino, and she's called the Cheese Nun. And she's just down the road. Uh-huh. And she, there was a New Yorker article on her called Raw Faith. And then there was a, uh, a, a show produced called The Cheese Nun, and Fr- Nun, French Television and PBS. And she is addressing slow food in Bra. Bra is the, where the home of slow food is near Torino. And she's giving a big address tomorrow on cheese to slow food cheese which is an annual uh, conference in Torino. So I'm still kind of keeping that slow food uh, connection uh, alive. But I must say, we've, we don't go to Torino anymore, to Bra. We actually stay in Florence and study sensory taste sciences there. And then also, and I talk about this in the book, I'm interested in sensory taste science here, too, in the United States. That's very big, very big at UC Davis, for example, oh, yeah. huge yeah. center. Oh, no, and no. as as you might, you know, I'm sure you're not surprised um, to find out. And artisan cheeses, for example, artisan foods are really difficult to study in terms of sensory taste profile and um, statistical studies because each batch is different. So Jacob Lani, L-A-H-N-E, he's done some really interesting work in sensory sciences on artisan foods and how, you know, it's hard to establish standards when each batch is different. Wow. So, I mean, I, this, is, this is what I think is really interesting. And I think your show does this too. Like it's a, all about inclusivity, you know, all of these different issues and like they're just like different aspects of uh of taking food seriously well and, and where we it comes pause from. here because you referenced a book and you've uh, so tell tell everybody what that book is and where they might find one and then we'll get on with our conversation but when you mentioned <laughs> a book some people might want to read it in your book yeah okay so this book is called food wise and um and um, it's uh, a guide to choosing sustainable and tasty foods. WISE is actually an acronym. So W-I-S-E. The W is for whole. That's whole farms mm-hmm. and whole foods. The I means informed. The S is sustainable. Sustainable food system, sustainable consumer budget. (laughs) And E is for experience, because in the slow food sense, experience is everything. The most radical thing we can do is cook. And it's really not even cooking, it's shopping. And I think as we shop and as we cook, we see food in a slightly different light. Um, So that is an acronym. And I have to say in 
different interviews I've done or speaking in my classes, the WISE acronym kind of works for everything. Climate change. You know, people or students are asking me questions, questions all the time. And um, just look at how integrated the system is. Mm. How much information do you have? And what is it that is sustainable about it? Because we all have to get there. It's just a question of how to get there. And then experience is... Um, super important. Experience is how we get smart. It's literally how we grow dendrites. And so originally, a lot, my point of departure was the work of Barry Schwartz um, from Swarthmore. And he and a colleague, Kenneth Sharp, wrote a book called Practical Wisdom. And that book, Practical Wisdom, was about how nurses and teachers and lawyers and judges and hospital administrators and university faculty do the right thing. How do you do it? You don't do it just because you've got rules. In fact, rules kill skill. In fact, what we really need to do is experience something, experience the 16-year-old who, you know, has a minor minor offense. No, not going to put him in prison, even though even though we've got some some guidelines, some regulations, some rules that say this is what happens when this kind of offense is committed. No, we're going to fall back on our experience and information is secondhand experience. Information is really important. And so in the book, I talk about information from all sorts of different sources uh, and that kind of feeds into, into the experience. Um, so the book isn't really about food. It's about food choices. It's how we choose uh, food so, and it's using this little system, this whole information, sustainable experience. And there's recipes. So I'm really fortunate that the book has won 12 awards for writing. But I have to say like a third of them are cookbook awards. A third of them are like investigative journalism. And then some are on for health reporting, even though I try not to use the word health or healthy. People are in kind of transition in the words they're using to describe what matters to them right now. And so sustainable is kind of being followed by regenerative. Well, I, the continuum I would say would be sustainable, resilient, regenerative. Okay. And, and I don't like the word sustainable. I know I used it. I don't like it at all. So I, and I talk in the book about this, that I much prefer the word resilience. And I, well, you, I actually don't think it's an overused word. Um, in 2009, we got money from the USDA to do uh, they, uh, my university. Oh, I was the, sure, sure. I was okay, the leader. Sure. Okay. And, um, and it was the, the pot of money was, so to speak, was for uh, middle scale, small scale and middle scale prosperity planning for farmers. Mm-hmm. And what we did was... We turned that into a resilience study. And why resilience is such an important word compared to sustainability is is it's not as divisive. So in my farming community, sustainability is a super divisive word because sustainability has a whole set of indicators and you're either it or you're not. You're either in it or you're not. You're sustainable or you're not. And... um, 
my community food co-op types, this is what the farmers say, are the ones that are deciding on what's sustainable. So they'll have like the annual fall sustainable farm tour and they're small scale farms. And the farmers are having their annual parallel sustainable farm tour, but their farms don't look anything like, you know, the community food co-ops farm tour. So what's that about? And so, um, so resilience, though, is different because all farms want to be resilient. So all farms want to withstand threats of seasonal fall flooding. They just do. I mean, why? Why would you put up with that? It has to do with, you know, activities and things that are happening and the certain practices in the upper reaches of the watershed. That's going to affect you if you have five acres or 500 acres, that flooding. And so what we found is resilience is a way to kind of get everyone by and large at the table talking to each other or energy price spikes or climate change or urbanization urbanization is also so these are all threats and we pr propose disaster scenarios out to 2080 or 2060 and got farmers together to talk about resilience so anyway i what are strategies to build adaptive capacity and I think, yeah i think of resilience uh, as almost requiring a problem i mean things happen and and with resilience yeah. it's like you bend but you don't break you, you exactly. Know, you, and and you do that as individuals, you do that as a community, you it may get you down, but I'm not out. And that's what I what I kind of sense before we started having it assigned so much just to agriculture, is that ability to bounce back, uh, and not necessarily keep bad things from happening, because stuff happens, you go through droughts, and you go through forest fires, and, and you go through hurricanes and things like that. But uh, resilience means to me that you hang in there and you you keep on going and maybe get to a higher level. Absolutely. It's all about building adaptive capacity. And you only do that if you have threats. So if you've got a system that stabilizes prices, you'll never see any threats. Yeah. So there's no there's no adaptive capacity building. But the resilience um, the resilience suggests that um, that that could that building is happening, but what's not resilient is losing open space. And because once that farm infrastructure is lost, it, it's gone almost forever, depending on, depending on the type of agriculture. So losing open space. And well, wait a minute, say that again, the one-stop shopping, say. There's two important things to being resilient. And one is maintaining open space. So that's part sure. of the reason why I'm a little bit more inclusive in what constitutes a smaller and medium-sized farm, because numbers of farms are important in terms of keeping open space open. But the other thing is the knowledge. Once knowledge is lost because people are leaving farming, that's it. Right. So the really what we're trying to do is look at what are the strategies that the farmers have, what are the assets they need, and very importantly, public opinion. What is the public opinion that supports them in terms of maintaining open space and, and not losing that knowledge base? So I don't talk about this too much in the book. I talk about it a little because really only half the book is on agriculture. But what I try and do is make the argument that it's really important to keep our farms. <laughs> and I know that we're on the same page with that. Well, we are. We are. Absolutely. And the thing is, what I'm seeing is that uh, like farms won't be denied. I mean, it's kind of like 
We have the farms that are still out there. And then we have people that are trying to become farmers and that they're going to rooftops and community gardens and, and inside, outside, all sorts of things. It's sort of like uh, you, you can't stop it. Uh, and that there are people that have the impulse. They want to, they want to, um, to learn more. And if given a chance, they may want to support it with either purchasing products too. But it's just that I see so many different ways and spaces that people are creating farms. People are creating farms that don't need a thousand acres. There are people creating farms out of one acre or uh, a warehouse with, you know, with lights and, you know, whatever else they need. Yeah, you know, so there's another part to this, which is like my second part of the book, which is the consumer. And so because demand is really important Mm -hmm. and it's the amount, but also the kind of of food product. And um, and so so this is a little controversial in the book. But what I do is um, I kind of took on some different kinds of science that studies food and what's a good food. So uh, one was epidemiological from UC San Francisco, Robert Lustig. And I looked at the sugar um, uh, debate. And he says, of course, giving your kid a can of Coca-Cola is like giving your kid a a beer in terms of how it's metabolized, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that, the kind of um, clinical studies, I guess. Then I took a theoretical scientist, Stephanie Seneff, who's very controversial, and she's written a lot about fat. But what she does is she shows how fat is metabolized in our bodies and how important it is as a nutrient. If you believe that, then you create a certain kind of demand for integrated livestock agriculture, for example. So there is a strong connection. And then the third was a sensory taste science statistical perspective. And that's where I brought in the work of Jacob uh, Lani, who did the work on um, sensory taste profiles for artisan foods. But really, the question is always, what's a what's a um, what is a good food? What is a food wise food? And again, I try not to use the word healthy in the book because so many people equate healthy food with low fat. Right. Right. Um, So but I'm open. (laughs) I'm open. But my students especially pretty much resist the idea. A lot of them of animal agriculture, integrated animal agriculture, even in terms of soil fertility, maintaining soil fertility and um, and fat. So I've had a lot of practice. Well, you know, I've I've lately um, I've had brought to my attention the keto diet, which Mm -hmm. really encourages eating fat. Uh, mm-hmm. as, and very few of the other kind of carbohydrates. So you can have the vegetables, but you stay away from the starchy vegetables and stay away from, from grains, but you can do vegetables and meats and fats, but they can eat a lot of cheese. I mean, keto diet, have mm-hmm. your refrigerator full of cheese and putting it on everything you can. Are you a fan? So um, the thing about keto, I mean, you say that there's vegetables, there's some, it's, yeah. it's not a huge part of the diet. And what a vegan friend, actually, her name is Teresa Reland, and she has a blog, Sweet Veg, it's called, and she works primarily in macrobiotic diets. 
But she and I were talking the other day, and I think she really said it succinctly that what we really need to do, you know, animal protein, not animal protein, is eat more vegetables. And that is very, very challenging. So the vegetables are important for the fiber. And for, and for many other reasons as well. What we really need to do is eat more vegetables. And I like the way she said that, you know, if we can agree on nothing else. And the keto probably, you know, is kind of borderline unless you customize it, you know, in terms of the, well, in terms just, of the vegetables. We could, go, we could go on on that. Although it does make me think back of there was a time where we weren't talking about vegans. We were talking about vegetarians. And yeah. the vegetarians that I used to know always ate uh, dairy products yeah. and eggs. So, yeah. and it was kind of a radical departure. It's kind of like, well, I missed the memo, you know, when everybody decided, okay, we're all switching over to vegan, but, uh, but now it's like uh, the reference is all vegan, this and vegan that. Whereas again, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you know, it was much more talking about vegetarian, but it did include animal products might not be red meat for the reasons that people were objecting to livestock or slaughter of livestock, but it did tend to include, you know, cheese and eggs. I know. And now what you, now what you hear a lot is that these aren't clean uh, sources of protein. And that's kind of the way it's, it, it's framed. And, um, and I, you know, um, I, when I became a vegetarian, <laughs> when I was in college at the university of Sussex, I totally overate cheese and dairy. I totally right. overate. Right. I love and it. then I, when I started teaching my political economy of food classes, I started to do protein analyses with the students. You know, we'd find out that we're eating way too much protein, whether we were so-called vegetarian or not. But I, I kind of overcompensated. The reality is in terms of vegetarianism or, yeah, uh, is that, uh, is that, and even, uh, you know, an animal-based diet, we don't need very much. Sure. So, you know, Sander Katz, who uh, writes on fermentation, who endorsed my book, and he's a, a friend uh, now, um, and he, you know, he said it to one of my classes once, when people said, are you vegetarian? He said, you know, I'm an omnivore, but that doesn't mean I eat a lot of meat or I eat a lot of kimchi right. or, you know, I ferment everything. And so we tend to see things in terms of black or white meat, no meat, but really it can be a little meat, a little sure. eggs, a little cheese. And I think, sure. yeah. Well, hey, let's go back to, to real basics. I want to go all the way back to the sheep now. So, so <laughs> when, you're, when you're not on the mainland and you're back on the island, what kind of sheep do you have? Well, almost all dairy sheep in the United States are East Frisian, and really? they come from the same area of the world that the Holsteins come from, if I'm not mistaken. It used to be that, in fact, you'd hear this statistic that uh, all dairy sheep in the United States came from the, 60, from the same 60 cloned embryos. Mm -hmm. So this is a history that I'm not completely <laughs> um, versed right. in, but but um, the idea is that the USDA really 
put uh, set some kind of strict standards for what could or could be important in terms of breeding stock uh, into the United States. So anyway, most dairy sheep, the high producers are East Frisian. So we have we have three East Frisian sheep and we have one Tunis. And the Tunis is a much older breed, and actually, she's producing a lot more, um, a lot more creamy milk than um, than the other sheep are. So we have the Tunis and Tunis East Frisian, East Frisian, and there's a few other breeds uh, as well that people use. I think in France, don't they use the the Rambouillet breed quite a bit for some of the French cheeses? Uh huh, Lacune, and yeah, uh huh. The uh, so so paint this picture. So so you get up and you go out every morning and you you milk the sheep. Is that right? So um, right now, what happens is um, we milk around uh, noon. Now it's it's a little odd because we're only milking one time a right. day, but we milk around noon. And then probably three or four evenings a week, some a friend milks and she'll milk around seven. If we milk in the evening, we milk around eight o'clock. And these sheep, and then, are, they're yeah. out in the pasture. And then when it's time to milk them, mm-hmm. do they know to come in? It's time for them they to totally go. They totally know. They're totally tracking on the grain. Mm-hmm. And so you feed them at the same time. They come in, you put a halter on them, tie them up, and you sit um, down. They're in a little pretty, little pretty wooden stanchion. Uh-huh. And that we've built, and uh, and they usually sit there. They stand very still, and I milk them. And then what we need to do the milk is raw, obviously, and so uh-huh. we want to get it in an ice water bath. So it comes down to forty two degrees within two hours. And so we're very. You got them meticulous. in a bucket. And you pour it into bottles or jars before you uh, put it in ice water. A, we have a filter. In uh-huh. glass jars, in 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 milk jars, and we um, yes, we pour it through the filter, and then as soon as we're finished, we finish milking, we get it into the ice bath mm-hmm, in the fridge. And then how? And then how does it go from that state to becoming cheese? <laughs> well, I mentioned this in the book. Milk doesn't want to be milk, and this is what I tell my students uh, and people who are demonizing milk. Right, right. Like, okay, you can talk about drinking milk and how you don't like to do it, but we weren't meant to do that. And so, milk doesn't want to be milk; it wants to be cheese. It starts turning almost immediately. Oh, really? And so, and so, you need to work pretty hard so that that doesn't happen. So it happens under the controlled conditions that you want it to. Yeah. And then, of course, you have all of that about how um, how the you know the enzymes are induced enzymes. So if you stop drinking milk, you don't really have them to digest, or it takes a while to develop enough to, to get enough substrate to start producing the enzymes again as an adult, an adult drinker mm-hmm. of milk, etc. But anyway, um, so it sits in the fridge. It sits for a little while when their milk production drops off. But when they first start, when I first start milking them, and that's going to be just once a day. So they're with their lambs still for the mm-hmm. rest of the day. I can make cheese, a double batch of cheese every two or three days. And now it's once a week. And you pour it into what? Some sort of vat and you add something to it? Yep. I've got stainless steel vats and you don't have to. This is, of course, what Mother Noella and the Bethlehem cheese of the Regina Laudis Abbey is all about. 
But um, I usually use a culture because I like making all sorts of different cheeses from Fontina to uh, uh, to Colby to, you know, um, uh, to black pepper Asiago. Anyway, you um, you add a culture and the whole point of the culture is to acidify the milk. I mean, the milk has to be rather acidic and ready to cleave its hydrogen ions to form the fat uh, protein micelle. Uh, so you need those, those conditions just so. So I want to acidify the milk. It will acidify on its own, and especially raw milk, I should add. But um, but I just, I just want to be sure. And also it does have some effect on the aging, but not a lot, less than you would think. And then after it's ripened for an hour or so, I add rennet and let that sit for an hour. And then you have the cleavage. And then the cleavage happens and I get a curd. So the and culture, then, the, the, the back to the culture, is that is that bacteria? Yes, it is a bacterial culture, and almost all of them come from France. Oh, you order, and, and they you get imported I cultures? Order, mm -hmm. uh, I order these. I order from Canada. I order from here. You order the culture, and um, and uh, but it, but almost all cheese is made the same. So we have three or four thousand cheeses, say but almost all of them are made the same way. So it's really kind of fine tuning to get like, to get these different cheeses. So anyone who makes cheese, this is why it's so much fun with my students is shocked that you've got three or 4,000 cheeses like, and no, it's not true that you're adding a particular bacteria mix and that's going to make, you know, Parmigiano cheese or Manchego. No, it doesn't quite work that way. And, um, and so, so anyway, a, then so it's, a, it's a microbe community. It's a, it, it's a microbial. It is a microbe co community, but you're also playing with internal pH, you know, acidity levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the aging is super important. Wow. And the, and so you cut the curd and then you have curds and whey and, uh, curds. and what? I love curds. I just like yeah, yeah. And you can either heat the curds. It depends on the recipe or not. And you really should once you once you drain the curds from the way you really should heat the way immediately to make ricotta, which just means recooked. It's a recooked way. Wow. And I make I can get two or three pounds. So from from three gallons of milk, I can get four pounds of cheese. Sheep cheese, it's three pounds with cow's milk, but it's just so much more rich, the sheep milk, which is why I have sheep and partly, partly that's why I do. But anyway, I get three pounds, four pounds, four pounds, sometimes five pounds of cheese in early in the spring when there's so many more solids, the fat and the protein molecules. And then I'll get two or three pounds of ricotta also. But this is why it's cheese making is such a great thing for students because they can be easily distracted. And if you're easily distracted and don't heat that way right away to close to 200 degrees, you won't recover the ricotta, the solids. I love this story. And, and you know, what a good way to talk about food resilience, because you, you know, start pulling in the, the sheep and the milk and making the cheese 
Now, do you sell the cheese? So, you know, I've got too many day jobs. And so, honestly, in COVID, my classes to Italy and Mexico and Switzerland have been canceled. So I've been here making so much more cheese. When I'm away, I have other people milk. And the deal is they keep half and I get half because sheep milk is the one milk you can freeze. I didn't know that either. Yes, you can freeze it. And then I make the cheese when I get back from Europe is what happens. So now I've been making a lot more, but even still, all of this cheese is mostly for my family, but I might be using it. I won't get too specific, but I might be using it with um, my women friends who are spinning wool for me or who are making blankets or, you know, hats from our fleeces um, and take it to uh, share among friends, I guess is so, what I So you say. are, not to get off track here, but you are shearing then. So you're using the wool too? Yes. Oh, man, this has got everything. No, <laughs> we're, using the, we're using the wool, but we're also, you know, che- I don't know if I should say this, but anyway, cheese is killing babies. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but we do have to kind of like consciously manage the male, the male, you know, oh. the, the male oh. lambs. And so we'll, re- we'll raise one. And then we harvest uh, consciously uh, right. this male lamb after about a year and a half, and we'll take the hide and we make sheepskins. Sure. And then, I mean, there's lamb to market then too. Oh, yes. And yeah. then there's well, lamb. Well, I think it's, we I mean, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole cycle though. It is the whole cycle. And I have to say, I see my friends who are getting sheep feeder lambs, they're called. And I have to say, I feel a little sick to my stomach because... Yeah, it's good to raise your own meat. I get that. But they're not part of a cycle. Mm. And um, do you know what I'm saying? Whereas this is really a whole cycle. We manage our one acre of pasture that we've cleared out of 25 acres of woods. It's mostly woods here. We've managed that so intensively uh, with, you know, rotational grazing and we really pay attention. I mean, we do have to get hay, but now we're getting it anyway from somewhere on the island. Um, we manage that, you know, very, very carefully. And when they do have their lambs each year, we make sure that they go to good homes. I would never take them to an auction where there's people in agriculture who have goats or they have got a cheese company and people come by and want to see the lambs and and then they'll slaughter them huh. you know the following fall. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I've seen some wonderful stories that are resilient of some large sheep operations in the mountains that they're grazing. The lambs are born in the mountains. They're raised on mother's milk. And then by the, by the fall, they actually either are ready for market or they may have to be in a feedlot for a month or so with a little grain if they haven't changed the weight. And it's a beautiful story, too, in its own right. It's just a different story. You know, I have to say I was kind of careful in the book, but I mean, also with beef cattle too, and beef feedlots, as long as it's, you know, green, let's just say, in terms of environmental standards and waste management. My big problem with industrial agriculture isn't with sheep or beef so much uh, as with chickens, you know, Uh, with kind of industrial industrial chicken. But um, I completely agree with you. 
Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, those are stories we cover, and uh, you've known on some of our podcasts. I'm covering some of those as well. Well, let's get back to this. I mean, I love this whole sheep cycle. I I envy you. I think that I could, uh, if I had a little more uh, acreage, I'd be tempted to, to try to learn how to be uh, become a producer. Maybe I should just buy some frozen sheep milk and play with it. But, but yeah, you uh, could, you could, and play with it. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And compared to goats, oh my gosh. I've milk goats too, yeah. but compared to goats, you don't need the fence, the height of fence that you do with goats, say, you know, who are browsers and jumpers and kickers. And, uh, but sheep are interesting. You milk them from behind. Yeah. yeah and well. uh, some of the videos I have from like the Basque country, you know, show these swarthy folks who are just grabbing sheep and milking them in the, in the fields. In fact, I had a sabbatical in Switzerland at the Gertianum. Uh, which is the seat of biodynamic farming two years ago. And anyway, a person I lived with, he had been a sheep farmer when he was a young guy. He was German, but anyway, in Italy, and he would milk 40 sheep in an hour. And, uh, you know, that's what it takes me to milk my three sheep. Of course, I'm trying to get every single drop of milk, but it's a lot of fun. Oh, I could go on. And, you know, I'm just thinking when you're talking about what you would want to milk, we have somebody that's not far from here that's raising uh, buffalo uh, to produce uh, buffalo mozzarella. Nice. And, uh, and, you know, you can get, you know, good local fresh buffalo mozzarella. And, uh, but I don't know the first thing about how I would be able to milk them. I did milk cows, uh, you know, when I was growing up. Yeah. But, uh, never, and the only time we ever milked sheep was trying to help get a lamb started. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but then we had we had bottles for that, too. Let's mm-hmm. switch all the way. Now, we've talked more about some of the classroom, the students, the global uh, raising sheep, making cheese. Um, let's talk about from a consumer perspective. Um, if you really buy into the picture that that you're painting here. How do you live that? I mean, how do you, how do you say, I want to be fully engaged for me, myself, for my family and uh, in encouraging resilient production or slow food, or how, how do you act if you decide that's, that's for me, I'm going to go that path. Well, I mean, I guess a, a couple things come to mind. One is Again, it's that all or nothing thing too. So there's 30 recipes in the book. I'm not cooking every single day. People do not need to cook every single day. They do not need to shop every single day. And, you know, at one point I thought about putting in a kind of full-on meal, having shopped at 7-Eleven. In fact, I I did the research for it and then I thought I just, I let it go, but I could have done that and maybe I should, I should do a blog. So it doesn't have to be, you know, full scale, full on all the time in terms of the shopping and the cooking. And this is what I say in the book that, you know, if we're trying some days, some of the time, eventually we're going to get there. You know, that's one thing. Um, I would say, you know, keep it simple. That simple is fine. And so, and also look at your, the choices that you're make, that you're making in that simplicity. So, so, you know, rice and beans with some vegetables, a little bit of cheese, you know, maybe it's Tillamook. So, so where we are, I don't know if they dip all the way into California. They're originally organ based. Tillamook is super interesting. It's super industrial cheese. It's a cooperative, sure. like all dairies, but um, I mean, dairy industry, but um, you know, it's, it's run by a vet. 
And they've got some really interesting standards mm. for protecting their animals. And it was one of the first, you know, no, uh, you know, um, bovine growth hormone, for example. Mm -hmm. That's fine for me. I mean, I actually eat that at night and I eat my sheep cheese. So I'm a fine example of how, you know, I take a little bit from here and a little bit from there. You know, I would say, and how much time do you really have to research, you know, the origins of every single thing? Like, no. And so, you know, I'll go to the co-op if I want organic. I know that even at the co-op, I might be buying big organic. I know. Certainly if I go to Fred Meyers, I'm buying big organic, but at least I know there's no irradiation. And so I'll definitely buy my spices, even though it's from big organic. But I don't know. And then I'll go get my carrots at the local market. So I would just say uh, this has got to be, you know, the S isn't just for sustainable, it's for sane. You know, also, I mean... Um, there's no shame in well, uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But like you mentioned, Tilmok, that you know, I know, I know them. I know a lot of big companies that are doing a good job, and and I know they get criticized for greenwashing of that. Oh, they're all saying that they're doing this or that because it would sell. Well, that's true. Uh, they 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 are putting those claims on their packaging, but I still think that's a good sign. Because I think that there, that doesn't mean that there aren't good stories behind them. I mean, I, I notice more and more when I go to the supermarket that there are, I'll look at the packaging and see what they say about what, how it was produced or the country it came from or so forth. And I would, am more likely to lean towards a product that has a good story uh, than not. And if I get a chance, I'll research it. And, yeah. and find out whether or not they, you know, there's any reason to doubt what they're claiming. You know, I think I, I completely agree. And I think it's a question of going back to the acronym. Whole means integrated, means whole farm, whole feed people, hmm. whole people, whole foods, but also whole soil fertility. Right. I mean, you know, it's a cycle and then informed and sustainable experience. And and then remember what we said early on that losing resilient resilience is about losing open space and losing um, and losing knowledge. And a good example is Cascadian Farms. Let me just try and soften this <laughs> story a little bit. But I mean, Cascadian Farms started along I-20. It was five acres. And when I first moved here in 1995, I took my students there on field trips, the five acres organic Cascadian Farms. No. And now it's, uh, you know, it's a mega industry and it's sourcing not from the United States only, but from, you know, Indonesia and, and elsewhere. And I worry about the loss of open space. Because those five acres are still a small five acres, and instead of instead of expanding here, expanded somewhere somewhere else, and those that acreage is vulnerable now because it's not being farmed. So I don't know. I mean, so I I think I mean I think I would fall back on uh, trying to support an agriculture when I have the time, an agricultural system, a farm system that is. That is that results in as much farmland as possible being preserved. Well, and I think you can do that now. And I, I think that not only preserve, but one of the things I'm encouraged with some of my other stories is that we're recovering farmland. Uh, that yes. because we're building the soils back up again, there's land that was on the verge of becoming deserts or had been deserts that are being brought back 
to be uh, more like it was when Buffalo roamed the, the continent and, um, you know, build up those fertile soils again because the organic matter is coming in and it's taking livestock to do it. And, you know, smart grazing, mm -hmm. like I'm sure you're doing with your sheep, mm -hmm. uh, that, that your pastures are probably better than they would be if you didn't have sheep. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And actually, I've got an idea for another book, which will be on a women's co a collective <clears throat> in India called the Timbuktu Collective. Uh -huh. And what they've done there is amazing. It's beyond microcredit, beyond micro lending. It is that they started from nothing and they have thrift credit is what they call it. And it's all about credere which is Latin and Italian, it means to believe in. And that really is the true meaning of credit and lending within a community, believing in your community projects mm -hmm. and believing in your community. And just what you said just reminded me that the other thing that happened was they restored desert. They restored thousands of acres of desert, of completely uh, damaged land, and it can be done. Yeah, it can be done, and it is being done, and those are the things that give me hope. Also, I get hope when I talk to somebody uh, like you, Gigi. Uh, you're you're doing some exciting things. You're really, really walking the talk. I mean, you're talking resilience. You're writing books. You're teaching students. You're making cheese for crying out loud, and growing your own sheep. I mean, I don't know how you become any more authentic to this journey than you are. <laughs> yeah. That's very, that's very kind. I get super stimulated and excited and encouraged when I talk to people like you. Oh, well, come on. I've, if I'm going to ask you then one more time to tell people that they could find you, I think on Facebook too, you have, <laughs> um, so look for you food wise, look for your book, look for, uh, yeah, look for slow food coming a, up and look for Facebook. Film? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think just food wise, which is one word, yeah. Michael Pollan, who endorsed my book, said, Gigi, I can't find your book. Uh, I'm like, Michael, dude, no, what are you talking about? And he had he had separated food and wise. So anyway, it's food wise, one word. And I think if you just get the Gigi in there, G-I-G-I, -G -I, yeah. um, you'll you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram. And then there's a website, too. And you can. You can see there's blogs. I've got, you know, I did 270 vlogs in lockdown since March alone <laughs> on resilience. So really, there's a lot of information if you just look at food-wise, one word. Well, I tell you, this has been great conversations. One of those has made me want to be able to add a video too to it sometime. I'd like to take people with us and we'll go take the ferry across to your island and yeah, see your sheep and your cheese and, and that sort of thing. But at the, at the very least, least, I think people kind of got the visit today, uh, got the tour as if they were there. And thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. You're very kind to invite me. Thank you. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or go to iTunes to subscribe and give us a review and a rating. Thanks for listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. <laughs>